ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. In an historic decision, the High Court has ruled that the indefinite immigration detention of non-citizens is unconstitutional. We were prepared for this outcome due to the case's significance. This is something that people have been talking about for really two decades since the High Court set a different precedent. Immigration and Citizenship Minister Andrew Giles speaking there about the High Court's decision that immigration detainees cannot be locked up indefinitely if there is no realistic path to removing them from the country. Professor Michelle Foster is Director of the Peter McMullen Centre on Statelessness at the University of Melbourne. Professor Foster, just how significant is this decision? Well, Damien, this decision is of enormous significance. This matter addresses a policy that has been in place since 1992 and has been subjected not only to many High Court challenges since that time, but has also been the subject of many challenges before international fora as well, where we've been found to be in violation of our human rights obligations in relation to our system of mandatory immigration detention. It's a grave human rights issue and therefore the fact that the High Court has addressed this and found that at least in some cases, detention ceases to be lawful. So just to clarify, the court did not find that immigration detention per se is unlawful. It found that while it may begin lawfully, if you like, it becomes unlawful when there's no real prospect of a person being returned in the reasonably foreseeable future, being either released from detention via a visa or being sent home. And so it is really important because it is for the first time imposing a clear limitation on the Commonwealth's power to detain indefinitely. The case was brought by a plaintiff with the pseudonym NZYQ. How did he find himself in permanent immigration detention? He arrived in Australia in 2012 from Myanmar. He's a stateless Rohingyan man. So that means that although he was born in Myanmar and had come from Myanmar, the Myanmar government doesn't recognise him as a national. He came to Australia seeking protection. Now, he applied for a bridging visa and was on a bridging visa when he committed a very serious criminal offence. He was charged and tried, I think actually pled guilty for that offence. He raped a 10-year-old child, a very serious A very serious criminal matter. But he was, you know, he was subjected to the regular criminal justice system in Australia. He pled guilty. He had a fairly lengthy criminal sentence imposed upon him and he served that sentence. When he was released, the visa that he was on was cancelled and he was taken immediately into immigration detention. And that was on the basis that the minister has the discretion to cancel any type of visa, whether it's a protection visa or any other type of visa, on what is called character grounds. So the minister can decide that a person is essentially not of good character and therefore their visa is cancelled. So he found himself in immigration detention on that basis in that he's a non-citizen, in this case without a visa, and therefore he was required to be detained. So he serves his prison sentence at the end of that prison sentence in 2018. He's immediately transferred into immigration detention with the government's goal to deport him. 
but there's nowhere to deport him. Absolutely. And it's really crucial to understand that at some point the government had made the determination that he was a person who had a well-founded fear of being persecuted were he to be returned to Myanmar. And for that reason, that it was always clear in the government's mind that he could not be sent back to his home country because that would be a violation of our international obligations. And so he couldn't be returned We assume that there may have been approaches to other governments to see whether he could be sent elsewhere, but obviously that wasn't successful because he was still in detention and he couldn't be released from detention. So he was facing indefinite detention, potentially for the rest of his life. So he couldn't be returned because Myanmar says he's not one of us, he has no Myanmar citizenship, or because we can't send him back because we acknowledge that he's at risk of persecution. So the finding that was made was that he had a well-founded fear of being persecuted in Myanmar. The Australian government was clear that we could not return him because of our own obligations. But you raise a really interesting question because he is stateless, but he he also qualified for refugee status. So a stateless person is someone with no nationality. They may also be a refugee because they may be outside their country due to a well-founded fear of being persecuted. However, we do have stateless people in Australia who don't meet the refugee definition but can't be returned because, as you say, there is no country to which they belong. There is no country that is required to accept them. And so in his case, as I say, he also qualified for a refugee, but it does raise the broader question of how we are protecting and to what extent we're protecting stateless people in Australia. Because as I said, we do have stateless people in Australia, some of whom are not able to meet the refugee definition, and yet we do have obligations to protect them. We ratified the relevant treaty in 1973, and yet we don't have any visa category specifically for stateless people. Okay, so what happened last Thursday when this matter was heard before the High Court in Canberra? Something very unusual happened. Tell me what happened. That's right, Damien. So so what wasn't unusual was that the High Court had a full hearing over two days in the normal run of things. But what was highly unusual was at the end, at the conclusion of the oral hearing, the court adjourned, returned 16 minutes later and issued its order. And the order was that there was no real prospect of NZYQ being returned to or being deported from Australia. So in other words, the purpose of detention was no longer valid. So what's really unusual is that the court would almost always reserve its judgment being both the order and the reasons for its decision. In this case, the court obviously felt this was such a compelling case such an important issue for this particular person, but also, as I'm sure we'll discuss for potentially many others as well, it was so important that it needed to make the order immediately. Now, we don't have the reasons. We don't know how many judges agree with the decision because what the Chief Justice said was that at least a majority of the court agreed with this order. Now, of course, that leaves open the possibility that there will be dissenting judges. But we do know that a majority of the court has effectively overturned Al-Khateb. We do need to wait, though, now for potentially several months to read the reasons. Even without the High Court's written reasons, the Immigration and Citizenship Minister Andrew Giles told Radio National Breakfast that the government had released dozens of detainees who are affected by the NZYQ decision. That number is 80, all of whom are on appropriate visa conditions. And that's obviously one of the bases upon which we assure community safety. Those visa conditions include uh, regular reporting and, of course, the engagement that we have between the federal authorities, the Australian Federal Police and Border Force, and relevant state and territory authorities with the powers that they have and the responsibilities that they have. 
Professor Michelle Foster says the NZYQ case overturns an earlier, very significant High Court decision from 2004. The case centred on Mr Al-Khateb, a stateless Palestinian man who sought refugee protection here in Australia. But unlike NZYQ, Al-Khateb had not committed any offences. So, 20 years on, what's changed? So in 2004, in the case of Al-Khateb, the High Court found that ordinarily it's only the judicial arm of government that can exercise judicial power and that while ordinarily the imposition of a detention order would be judicial, it is permissible in certain situations for the executive arm of government to order detention and that immigration detention is one of those examples. What the court found was that the test is whether or not the detention is intended to be punitive. In Al-Khateb, the court said, well, immigration detention isn't intended to be punitive because it has these other purposes. It has the purpose of keeping people aside from the Australian community while their application for a visa is being assessed, while it's being decided what the government will do with them in terms of a visa or deportation. So it was very much focused on what's the purpose of detention. Since Al-Khateb, so since that time, there have been several challenges to that reasoning in the court. And although until a couple of days ago, the court had essentially upheld Al-Khateb, it had started to hint at the notion that maybe we don't look at so much a punitive purpose. We just look at, is the purpose of detention connected to an immigration function? In other words, what's happening to this person? Are they having a visa assessed? You know, where are they on the immigration pathway? So the court had started to indicate in reasons, in sort of obiter reasoning, that it may be that we need to look at this question of purpose a little bit differently. We don't have the reasons for NZYQ, but what we can surmise is the court is essentially saying in the case of someone like NZYQ, where there's no visa application on foot, all of his visa applications have been rejected and considered and assessed, and there's nowhere to deport him, there's no legitimate purpose connected with an immigration power anymore because you're not trying to deport him because you can't. There's no visa on foot. So the purpose of that detention becomes almost disconnected from the power of immigration. And at that point then, we can no longer say that it's validly connected to immigration such that it becomes an exception to the separation of powers principle. So the detention is no longer connected to the immigration power. All you're left with is it must be a form of punishment. Exactly. And that ain't constitutional. Absolutely. This is the first decision of the High Court of Australia under its new Chief Justice, Stephen Gagler, and also the first decision of Justice uh, Beach Jones, who's just been appointed to the court. Could these changes in personnel have impacted on the way the court reached its decision? Or you're pointing to decisions which point that the court was moving towards this point of view. That's right. I suppose we're really just engaging in a hypothetical discussion until we have the reasons. But I think it's worth noting that Justice Gagler, as he then was, prior to being the Chief Justice, of course, he's been a member of the High Court for a decade. And in some of the cases that I mentioned, he was part of that reasoning. So in a case called M76, for example, he, with two other judges, had issued a judgment that talked about the fact that detention must be limited. He had already 
issued reasons that suggested that he may see some limits on immigration detention. Um, His elevation to Chief Justice, therefore, could be significant in that regard. I think it's probably also just worth noting that, as we said, this is a very unusual stance that the court took, you know, actually just adjourning for a very short period and issuing an order. And I think that's a sign of leadership. And so, you know, you may say that the Chief Justice has really indicated that this is a new approach of the court, perhaps. Final question, community safety. People might have concerns about somebody like this man who committed very serious child sex offences being out in the community. What would you say to that concern? Look, I think I would say that we have a very robust criminal justice system that is the system that is designed and does function in an effective way to deal with criminality. This person, as we said before, he was arrested, he pled guilty, He was issued with a very significant penal sanction. He served a term of imprisonment. That is the system for dealing with criminal matters around public safety. The immigration detention system, as we said before, should not be punitive. It's an administrative detention system that is not designed to deal with these issues. And presumably he'll be subject to the same conditions and restrictions which apply to other serious sex offenders if he's deemed to pose a risk. We have to see what conditions, I mean, he will have certain conditions imposed on his visa, but then there may be other methods um, by which he can be restricted if there are those public community concerns. Which apply to all offenders regardless of citizenship. Exactly, regardless of citizenship. It's appropriate for him to be subjected to measures that may pertain to community safety in the same way that any person would that lives in our community. I mean, really, the point that's being made here is that there shouldn't be discrimination just because a person isn't a citizen, shouldn't mean that they are subjected to a double punishment in the form of immigration detention. Professor Michelle Foster, Director of the Peter McMullen Centre on Statelessness at the University of Melbourne, thanks for speaking to The Law Report. You're welcome. Now to another very significant High Court decision also focused on the limits of government power. Convicted terrorist Abdul Nasser Ben Bricka, a dual Australian Algerian citizen, successfully challenged legislation that could strip him of his Australian citizenship and lead to his deportation. But he is now awaiting a decision of the Victorian Supreme Court about whether he will stay in jail on the grounds that he poses an unacceptable ongoing risk to the community. University of Queensland Associate Professor Rebecca Ananian-Welsh is an expert in anti-terrorism laws. Professor Ananian-Welsh, who is Abdul Nasser Ben-Bricker and where is he right now? Abdul Nasser Ben-Bricker is someone who people who are at least watching the news back then might recall from 2007 when he was on TV's I think it was Four Corners, announcing that violent jihad should happen against the Australian government, that things should be bombed and that that he supported all of that. He then was prosecuted and convicted of major terrorism offences in Australia's largest ever terrorism trial. And this was plots to blow up uh, things like the MCG? It wasn't entirely clear what he did want to blow up, but he was definitely planning to blow something up. And he had a whole group of men around him, a terrorist organisation, the court called it, 
And he was the leader of that organisation and they were definitely planning some sort of major terror attack in Melbourne. So there was this extraordinary terrorism trial in Australia at the time. He was found guilty and what sentence did he receive? He was found guilty for a whole raft of different offences and we've got lots of terrorism offences here. The key one was leading or directing the activities of a terrorist organisation, being the organisation he'd actually created in Victoria. And for that, he received a sentence of 15 years in jail. So he serves the 15 years. Does he get released? No, he does not. So in the meantime, Australia has enacted a few different laws to try and keep people like Ben Breaker in jail if they continue to pose a threat to society. And Ben Breaker wasn't particularly remorseful at the time and all the psych reports and and certainly clear signs while he was in jail said he still didn't have any remorse for his extremist kinds of views. One of the main things that the government introduced is continuing detention orders, which allow for a court to order that a person is kept in jail past the end of their sentence if releasing them presents an unacceptable risk that they will commit some sort of terrorism offence. So a continuing detention order is for up to three years, but you can just keep renewing them. So there's no limits. You can just keep them in jail for the rest of their life until it's assessed that they don't pose that risk anymore. So we'll come back a little bit later in the conversation to to these uh, continuing detention orders and and how they relate to Ben Bricker. But he's just won a big victory in the High Court because another measure which was taken against him and I guess against other people in his boat, he's a dual national, he's a a dual Algerian-Australian national, There was an attempt to revoke his citizenship and deport him, and that has been squashed by the High Court. What did the majority of the High Court find with respect to that legislation? So the Abbott government introduced these new ways that you can take someone's Australian citizenship away from them, and it was all related to terrorism offences, and underlying it was a fear that people like Ben Breaker would maybe go free one day. And so one of the grounds on which you can take away someone's Australian citizenship, they have to be a dual national, then they have to be convicted of a major terrorism offence, and the minister has to think that taking away their Australian citizenship is in the public interest. And the minister here said all of those things about Ben Breaker. He's serving a sentence, he's definitely committed terrorism offences, and it's in the public interest, we don't let him out. The outcome of that would have been even if an application for a continuing detention order failed, so the court said he doesn't pose an unacceptable risk of committing offences if we let him out, then what would happen is he'd go straight into immigration detention unless he could convince Australia to give him a visa, which is not going to happen, and he'd stay in immigration detention until he could be deported back to Algeria or to another country. So the minister at the time takes away his citizenship and he and Ben Breaker challenges that in the High Court and the majority of the High Court, six to one, found in Ben Breaker's favour, saying it's unconstitutional to remove the citizenship of somebody in this way. What What's the crux? What was the reasoning of the High Court? What this really boiled down to was whether taking away Ben Breaker's citizenship or anyone's citizenship in this situation 
was punishing them or was for some other administrative purpose. So what six judges of the High Court said, and the Commonwealth itself was almost conceding this point, was that the reason the minister could take away his citizenship in this case was to punish Ben Breaker for his terrorism offences. And courts are the ones that punish people for what they do. So it's a quintessentially judicial thing. It's what our justice system does to say, oh, you broke the law and we're going to sentence you or punish you for breaking the law. It's not something that the other parts of government do, that ministers do or parliament does. So it breached the separation of powers because it was punishment. The one judge who dissented, Justice Stewart, he said, actually, this isn't because of punishment. This is because Ben Breaker has effectively turned his back on Australian society and expressed through his actions that he doesn't want to be Australian anymore and it's just recognising that. So it's not to punish him, it's to recognise the severance of his ties to Australia. And that was the government's line as well. But the six other judges of the High Court rejected that. They sort of said, look, no, this is a punishment and courts are the only people that can punish somebody, not government. Exactly. So let's now focus on what the future holds for Abdul Nasser Benbrika. He's still in jail on a continuing detention order, but that three-year period is running out shortly, I think, by the end of the year. And I understand the federal government has already gone to the Victorian courts to try and get an extension of that continuing detention order. What do we know about that process? So Ben Breaker's due for release under the current continuing detention order on Christmas Eve. Back in June or July, they applied for that a new continuing detention order to keep him in jail. But that was done in a way of saying, look, we want to keep him in jail, but if he comes out, we're going to throw him in immigration detention anyway. So now that this has all been resolved and he's not going to immigration detention, that case will be resolved. That could go, of course, two ways. Either the government wins and there's a new continuing detention order and Ben Breaker stays in jail for another three years and it'll just be reviewed again and over again and again. Or he's released. But we have more counterterrorism law here than anywhere else in the world and Ben Breaker's release won't be a, OK, you're free to go, good luck. There's a whole range of different orders that could be placed on him that would mean his freedom was seriously limited. So to clarify, Justice Elizabeth Hollingworth of the Victorian Supreme Court heard this case uh, back in June. She's reserved her decision but is expected to hand down her decision well before the, the 24th of December. So from the government's perspective, worst case scenario, she finds against the government and for Ben Breaker and that means he's released into the community. What sorts of conditions or supervision orders can be put upon him? And, and, and when has this been done in the past? In Victoria, there's quite a, a broad scheme, which is not used particularly rarely, for supervision orders. And they can last for 15 years. And the breadth of things that can be imposed on someone is pretty much anything that is seen as necessary to counterbalance the risk that they pose to the community. That might be really light things, like they've got to check in with police once a week. Or it could be really onerous things, like you're not allowed to leave the house or you're not allowed to leave the house between these hours. You have to 
wear a tracking bracelet. You're not allowed to use the internet or phone or really anything you can think of, short of sending them back to prison. And there's a very similar scheme federally, specifically for terrorists, called control orders. And some of the people who've been subject to control orders were David Hicks, uh, the Australian who was detained in Guantanamo Bay for five years without charge. And when he was brought back here, he was made subject to a control order. And similarly, Jack Thomas, who was known across the media as Jihad Jack, he was acquitted of terrorism offences, so a court found him not guilty, and still the government had enough evidence to put him under a control order. And those control orders can last for 12 months but be renewed forever. And what's the test for imposing that kind of supervision order? It's about uh, some kind of test about um, potentially posing a risk to the community? These things tend to rest on this idea of unacceptable risk, that if someone presents an unacceptable risk of committing an offence or causing harm to the community, then they can be subject to whatever constraints are necessary to counterbalance that risk. And this, those, that language of unacceptable risk is used quite purposefully because that's what the High Court has, has given the constitutional thumbs up to, that courts imposing all sorts of restraints on somebody after they've done their time is fine as long as it's to prevent unacceptable risk to the community. It can't be punishment, but it can be about avoiding unacceptable risk. Exactly. As long as it's about community protection... It's fine. And Ben Breaker had actually challenged the constitutional validity of continuing detention orders back in 2021 and failed because the High Court said, no, this isn't punishment. This is about protecting the community from unacceptable risk. Now, on the same day as the High Court handed down its decision in the Ben Breaker case, it also handed down a separate decision involving a Mr Philip Jones Again, um, a dual national who'd been convicted of crimes that the government wanted to boot out of the country. But the High Court, by majority, again 6-1, ruled in favour of that government move. Tell me about this man and why the High Court reached the the exact opposite view. So these are the kinds of things that, that constitutional lawyers like me live for. We've got two cases come down the same day, very similar situations, And we get to see the line drawn between what's constitutional and what's not. So Philip Jones had committed serious sexual offences before 1988. So in the 80s, he became an Australian citizen in 1988 and he was convicted of those historic offences. Which were committed in Australia before he was a citizen. Yes. He was convicted of those in 2003. So the convictions here weren't for things that he'd done while he was an Australian citizen. They were for things he'd done before he was an Australian citizen. And then the minister, much more recently, revoked his Australian citizenship and Jones was put in immigration detention. What the High Court said here is that this decision to take his citizenship wasn't about punishing him for what he'd done. It was plugging a gap in the provisions. So when you become a citizen, when Jones had become a citizen in 1988, he had to declare whether he'd been convicted of any offences. And had he said, oh, yeah, I engaged in a whole bunch of serious sexual offences, he wouldn't have been granted citizenship. So it's saying, well, if you did those offences beforehand and we find out about them later, 
the minister is allowed to kind of go back and correct their decision. So the purpose of this is what the High Court called integrity of the process. We're making sure that process has integrity and is working as it should. This isn't about punishing you. It's about correcting the decision that we made back in 1988. In other words, we should never have given you citizenship in the first place because you obviously failed the character grounds, something along those lines. That's it, yes. Associate Professor Rebecca Ananian-Welsh, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks, it's a pleasure. That's all we have time for on The Law Report. You can follow the program on the ABC Listen app. A big thanks to producer Christina Kukolia and to technical producer Kerry Dell. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.